Welcome to Bitcoin Fixes This, where we explore the impact that Bitcoin will have in all aspects of society. Today's guest is Nick Baccia, writer, financial professional, and Bitcoiner. We talk about the history of money, how cash developed, and the long road to the current layers of money that we have now. Nick also tells us about different monetary instruments, how central banks work, and the euro dollar that the Fed bailed out in 2008. Nick has a clarity of thought that's evident when you read his writing. His paradigm of layered money makes clear the shenanigans going on in the fiat world right now. I love his take and his explanations are a must to understand what's going on today. Enjoy this interview. Nick Baccia, how's everything going? It's going great, Jimmy. How are you? I am good. I am good. And where are you in the world right now? I'm in Los Angeles. Okay. And yeah, I I was there not too long ago, but how is it there with all of the craziness? You know, I'm born and raised here in LA, so I'm used to craziness in LA all the time. And, uh, you know, I have my family here and I feel very blessed that, you know, we all have our health and my parents are here also in, in LA. And so I just feel blessed to be here. Hmm. Okay. Well, I, that's good. I, hopefully things aren't getting too crazy or you know too restrictive or whatever. But I brought you on the show because I read your book, Layered Money, and I thought it was absolutely fascinating You know how you sort of like go through this new sort of way of thinking about money. And But before we get to that, can you give my audience sort of like a, a background on your you know credentials, I guess, or what, what, what you did and how you ended up writing this book. Sure. So I my background is in the traditional finance world in asset management specifically. I studied finance in school uh, and fixed income. I have my CFA charter holder, I'm sorry, my CFA charter and my CMT charter uh, as well. And I traded bonds for a large investment manager for several years here in Los Angeles where there's a huge fixed income community and a lot of the biggest fixed income managers in the world are in Southern California. And so I was right in the heart of that industry and I, I love my job. I am a global macro thinker and researcher first. That's what I think of myself. And so my outlet was through getting into the asset management industry and being on a trading desk. But when you know I eventually found Bitcoin, I identified Bitcoin as just another component of global macro, which is why it fit in so well to my interests and eventually why I ended up switching over. So while I was on the desk trading bonds, I started to see the word Bitcoin more and more. And to be honest, a lot of the word blockchain as well at the time, this was around 2016. And uh, so after seeing the word so often and ignoring it for so long, I said to myself that it is time to learn what is Bitcoin? What does blockchain mean? And I just started reading and pretty quickly I found, you know, articles like by yourself, uh, you know, mm. and, you know, interesting, like there was a, a great podcast at the time by Trace Mayer, who has since left the scene, but he would interview Adam back and, so I was, I was learning about Bitcoin from its roots right from the beginning. And because I was reading, you know, Jimmy song and I was reading other people that had the Bitcoin maximalist stance, you know, stance and attitude toward the scene, 
it actually, it was a blessing that that's what I read first and probably shaped my bias a little bit, but I really just, I just fell in love with Bitcoin and I, I saw gold in it and gold was a position that I had at the time. I had been long gold since 2011 and off the back of QE and things like that. So Bitcoin fit right into my investment thesis once I understood what it was. And I wasn't distracted by blockchain technology or altcoins because they were merely tech projects and tech startups that whether or not they work in the future didn't concern me because they weren't global macroeconomic instruments at all. Bitcoin was. And so I started, uh, you know, I started reading more and more about Bitcoin and then I went long Bitcoin. And then after Bitcoin took a big tumble in 2018, I thought to myself, this is the perfect time to write something and show the Bitcoin community that I'm not in it for the price, but I'm here because I really love this tech and I think it can change the world. And I identified something about Lightning Network at the time that Lightning Network shows a or it exposes a time value of Bitcoin because you can earn interest by staking Bitcoin to this network for routing payments. And there's this interest rate component, which is my area of expertise. So I wrote a piece called The Time Value of Bitcoin in 2018 and DM'd it to a few few people on Twitter and uh, they retweeted it and you know, I just got the energy to pursue a career in writing about Bitcoin. And that was in 2018. And it took a couple years to finally start writing Layered Money. But I, I wanted to do this for a long time. Hmm. Yeah. So, I mean, you've been, you come from this sort of like, you know, global commodities kind of or global trade, um, you know, investment uh, background. And it's very clear in reading your book that you have a lot of, you know, interest and expertise in this area. What I found really fascinating was this, you know, new paradigm that you put of, uh, of layered money. Can you describe that for us a little bit? What is layered money and why should we think of money in this way? Yeah, so it all stems from in a paper about 10 years ago from a professor named Perry Merling. He wrote about this concept called the inherent hierarchy of money. And he shows this three-layered model. He doesn't use the word layer, but he shows a hierarchy of balance sheets, a central bank and a commercial bank. And within these two financial institutions, there are three instruments in this in this theoretical model that fall into a three-layered monetary system. At the top is gold, which the central bank owns as its assets. Then it issues currency as the central bank's liability. The commercial bank uses currency as its asset and issues deposits as, as the commercial banking liability. And so you have gold, currency, and deposits as three separate monetary instruments, but they're not just instruments side by side, they fall into a rank, a hierarchy based on who issues them and whether it's on the asset side or the liability side of their balance sheet. And so, yes, we can look at a single balance sheet and see that they own this and they issue that, but different financial institutions use instruments 
with this rank. And I wanted to, when I read the paper, it was just a model, but I said, there's a hit, there's a whole history to this hierarchy. When did it start? And when did it shift in a very material way? And the answer is not what you would think. And it, you know, being 1971, when the gold standard ceased to exist, it actually happened much before that, where the hierarchy of money started to change and gold started to leave that top layer of the monetary hierarchy long before 1971. And that story with the hierarchy language, it hadn't been told. And so there was an opportunity to show why Bitcoin is a first layer money and not the same thing as PayPal or Venmo, which was very annoying to me intellectually as uh, somebody who studies the financial system and the monetary system. If you compare Bitcoin to PayPal, you're actually completely ignoring the hierarchy of money. And I, I, I had to explain that in a, in a holistic way. And so that's why I ended up writing the book was to show that First of all, the hierarchy of money is an important concept to understand how monetary systems work. And it's also essential to, to show us that Bitcoin is in a, it's a separate monetary system. It doesn't derive from anything that we have and it, and therefore it actually doesn't compete with any payment systems that are on lower layers of money in the U S dollar system, for example. Hmm. Yeah, so you have this very nice framework by which you can sort of understand what is going on with money. But what what I found really fascinating in your book was sort of like the history around it and how it evolved. And you start really with, I mean, you you mentioned the denarius in uh, in Roman times and so on, but really starts with the world's first global, you know, sort of like settlement currency, or uh, I think you call it like the global reserve currency or the standard currency that everyone used for trade. Um, and that is the florin. Can you describe why that became sort of like the standard? It really stemmed from how long the florin remained unchanged in its weight and purity. So in ancient times, like you mentioned, the denarius, Coins were clipped and and then they were other metals were introduced so that they the precious metal content themselves in the coin was reduced over time by governments. It's kind of like what we see with quantitative easing, balance sheet expansion at the central banks today. Governments have always done this where they dilute the currency because then it becomes easier to pay back debt or it's a stimulus to the economy or it's a bailout to the banking system. But in Florence, in the city republic of Florence at the time, the 13th century, and it was founded, I believe, in the 12th century, the Florentine government issued a coin in 1252 called the Florin. Now, after a few years went by and the coin had not been changed in its purity, people started to say, oh, we can, we can start to denominate our business in this because... It's something that we can use across the continent and we can trust the denomination. And really within 50 to 100 years, people in all corners of Europe were using the florin as their settlement currency, but more importantly, as the denomination of their business activity. So when they looked to settle 
foreign exchange swaps at the time, which were called bills of exchange. They wanted to make sure that their final delivery was in florin because they knew that whether the florin was issued in 1252 or 1352, they were getting the same amount of gold. And that was really the game changer that hadn't existed really in in history, where you have a trustworthy republic with good property rights, and they have also issued a coin that has unchanging purity, and the unchanging purity lasted for over 300 years. And so through time, it was just a cumulative effect, right? More and more people use it as a consensus mechanism And it it really extended beyond the coin itself. It really does come down to that accounting denomination and the fact that even if you don't, you're not able to move florin from Italy to France today, as long as you have agreed to settle in florin and you have a trust in that uh, business relationship, uh, you know, credit can be extended and economic activity can really flourish. Yeah, so the florin kind of became this international settlement currency, and it was a way to denominate. And as you point out in the book, denominate comes from Latin, like being able to name sort of things. It gave people a way to have some nice standard for the future that wouldn't screw each other over. It was a way to agree on something that gave it sort of this fixed standard, which obviously added a lot more economic activity, as you said. The next sort of like innovation that you point out is bills of exchange. And I think it's pretty critical that we understand this because this was, at least at the beginning... And, you know, I I guess to some degree today, a very important monetary innovation that I I really wish I had put into my books, but I don't think I really understood it until I read yours. So can you explain what a bill of exchange is and why it was so important for monetary history? Yeah, uh, the bill of exchange was a really interesting part of the research of the book because it took me a long time to fully understand what it was, and more importantly, how to represent it to the modern reader. Because it is, a bill of exchange is actually a, both at the same time, it's a conversion from currency A to currency B, and it's also a loan in that you borrow currency A and you pay back currency B at a later date, like in 30 days. So it's at the, it's, a Forex transaction, and a loan at the same time. And this was the first type of credit instrument that really gained popularity and any sort of uniformity where, no, they weren't all written the same with the same exact language, but it was it started to become a standard of payment where you could write a, you know, a banker could write a bill of exchange and facilitate a trade and then you know, make sure that the settle, you know, the settlement down the road happens because there, uh, there's a middleman involved or a paper trail, right? Somebody's signature on a piece of paper that says, I promise to pay you this amount of money in the future. So instead of trying to, you know, explain all these little nuances to the bill of exchange, it's better to just think of it as a foreign exchange transaction. Mm-hmm. And yeah, go ahead. Well, the thing for me that was interesting is that there has to be a discount because settlement doesn't happen until some point in the future. And that that part for me was is like critical to understanding it because 
as we'll talk about in a bit, there's a difference between that and promissory notes. Right, right. There's an accrual, there's an accruing interest factor in the bills of exchange. And yes, they are issued at a discount so that when they mature, you know, the person who's underwritten that risk gets a little bit of reward, right? They're able to capture that jump from 98 cents to a dollar. That two cents is then theirs. That's that's their reward for issuing that instrument. And so that's really what happened at the time. There are these merchant bankers and they would go around to fairs, which were basically like trading events, like conferences today. And they would go around and they would follow the traders. They would follow the cloth traders and the spice traders. And they would make sure that they were underwriting and letting people transact and taking a wearing the risk and, you know, getting paid back in 30 days. Hmm. Yeah. And that, of course, is what was pretty convenient at the time because you didn't actually have to carry around physical gold or silver or coins or whatever. But, you know, there was another innovation that happened right around uh, right after the bills of exchange. And this is a promissory note. What's the difference between a bill of exchange and a promissory note? The promissory note is actually more like a deposit. Hmm. It's like I promise, I just promise to pay you this amount. And there's no necessarily expiry to that instrument. It's just once it has the promise on it, it doesn't expire. So it's like a, it's like a perpetual promise. And the bills of exchange had a maturity. So that's one of the main differences to them. But then the other, like I said, bills of exchange were a cross currency. They, The merchant bankers were there because they knew, you know, party A and party B didn't have the same coins in their pocket, right? Mm -hmm. And so there had to be some sort of, uh, there was this issue of coin multiplicity. There were just a lot of different coins around Europe. And so, you know, bills of exchange brokers and traders facilitated that. The promissory notes were a later innovation to bills of exchange because that was really where we get this idea of cash today, where mm. this piece of paper is liquid and therefore we can call it cash. And so uh, bills of exchange were definitely not considered cash when they first started. Mm. Yeah. And, and that difference, I think, is, at least from my standpoint, is a critical difference because, you know, a lot of people sort of treat a lot of these things the same way in the same, like similarly, like how people think a deposit at a bank is exactly the same but you know like depending on if it's in a cod account or a savings account or a checking account they all sort of like evolve slightly differently and they all have different obligations with a promissory note you get the money right away and you can exchange it at any time with a bill of exchange you agree not to you can only get it at a certain date probably afterwards as well. But that's when you can actually convert that bill of exchange for the actual underlying coin. And that difference is is the difference between, you know, being, you know, having essentially a loan that is, as you call it, like has some time value of money in it and another one that's supposed to be sort of like equivalent. So there is that critical difference. Absolutely. Uh, but- yeah. The bills, the bills definitely have the time value component where the notes don't and the and that's why people would accept notes as liquidity for their bills right and so they have that complementary relationship there 
Mm, yeah, and that liquidity is absolutely important. And as you point out in the book, you know, promissory notes are much more natural to use as cash rather than bills of exchange because you know because you don't have to discount for the actual time value and so on. Exactly. Yeah. So we're moving on in this monetary history. You have this promissory note that is being used in these markets for actual trading because it's a lot more convenient than lugging gold around and so on. And as you point out, it makes you know trade a lot more convenient. It increases the velocity of money as you call it. But you know, what else does this do? How does this change sort of like, you know, how the world economy functions at this point? What happens when uh, you have these instruments and you speed up money velocity is that you add all these layers of trust that make things move faster. So now that you don't have to move coins around every time you transact, deals can be done quicker and people can take promises and then make promises based off those promises. And so then you introduce, of course, a lot more risk into the system because there's a lot more chance that people will default because you're not Mm. settling in the final settlement currency anymore. You're just doing deferred settlement all the time. Now, if we think about the way that our economy works today, there's very little final settlement. Corporations are always in the bond market, borrowing billions and billions, no matter how much cash they have in their balance sheet. And so there's always this churn of debt and borrowing because of time value. And there's why spend my money today when I can borrow from somebody else, make a spread and then pay them back a little bit and keep the juice. So that whole, the way that our economy works today, that really started to flourish when we had monetary instruments that became recognized across borders. And keep in mind that All of this is before we got to central banking. It was still more or less decentralized in the manner that it didn't come from the state level in the facilitation. It was banking families like Medici and and whatnot. So, but yes, to answer your question, it, it is, it does come down to money velocity, but the money velocity is increased because trust is introduced and that's the trade off. And that trust actually kind of makes the system a little more fragile. And we're starting to see sort of like why you get a lot of these like boom and bust cycles. And, you know, you you kind of mentioned this, but the next innovation is the advent of central banking. Can you, I really loved your chapter on the VOC and all that. Can you describe what happened there and why that was sort of like the first instance of fractional reserve banking and, and so on? Yeah, it's actually uh, probably my favorite part of the research for the book was trying to figure out this VOC story and tell it. So the VOC is the Dutch name for the the Dutch East India Company, the trading outpost that went to Indonesia and India and was part of the Dutch colonial effort during that era. So the advent of central banking actually comes from the Dutch East India Company because What happened was in late 16th century, all these Dutch traders were going to Asia and uh, basically bringing back a lot of uh, loot and they were able to turn huge profits and they decided to 
form a coalition and they said, if we partner together and we get some sort of charter from the state to, you know, wage war, for example, and, you know, have advantageous tax and tariff situations, we can make even more money than a park. And so they formed the Dutch East India Company, the VOC, in 1602 and issued, it was the first stock issuance, right? The first ever joint stock company. So people, you know, wealthy people in the Netherlands could buy shares in the VOC and participate in the upside of these uh, exploits in Asia. Mm. And once they started... Once they started marking to market their shares after the IPO, it wasn't called an IPO at the time, but mm-hmm. yeah, after the, after the initial public offering, the shares in the secondary market had value and they increased in value. So the, the original owners said, I want to liquidate. I want to turn some of my shares into cash. I want to diversify. I want to buy something else. And so a market developed for the trading of these shares. And eventually it turned into the first ever stock market called the Amsterdam Bourse. And when the stock market started, you had a lot of shares trading hands. But what was the other side of the share trade? It was all these different monetary instruments, you know, promissory notes, bills of exchange, coins, different forms of what people considered cash at the time. But it was a mess. And so... The state came in and said, we are going to form a central bank called the Bank of Amsterdam with the primary and express purpose to start clearing all these stock trading transactions. Because we should have an instrument that everybody uses on the other side of these share sales. And so they introduced the Bank of Amsterdam liability. It was called the Dutch Gilder. When they introduced that instrument, they made it the law that everybody had to use it. So all cashiers, which was the name for these coin depositors at the time, or sorry, these coin deposit depository institutions, they made them surrender all gold and silver to the bank and they issued them. It wasn't a seizure of assets. It, they issued them the Bank of Amsterdam deposit in return. Hmm. So basically, they forced the adoption of this second layer money for all participants within the economy in Amsterdam, in the, within the city. And so and that included the bourse. So then anybody that was going to sell shares in the VOC was going to accept a Bank of Amsterdam deposit as the other side of the trade, as their cash, as their liquidity instrument. Mm. And so... It was a a forced adoption of that currency, but it still, you know, held value in precious metal. There was, you know, exchange rate for, you know, people for for them to get final settlement in terms of the coins back for their Bank of Amsterdam deposits. But this universal mandate of what to everyone should use as their liquidity instrument, as their second layer money, it was the first ever attempt at what we think of now as central banking Hmm. where it's not, it's no longer a government issue, you know, minting a coin and saying, this is the currency that should be used. It is a government issuing a liability 
a banking liability, an instrument, and saying this is what needs to be used within our borders. And so that was the innovation from Amsterdam. And how did this whole thing end? Because, you know, obviously there's a very long history of the Dutch East India Company. But, you know, this experiment with trying to, you know, essentially force everyone to use this paper instead of, you know, metal. Like, how did that actually end? And it's always the same way, Jimmy. And so there's a great book called uh, This Time is Different. It's the, you know, exploration into the centuries of financial crises, they all end the same way in that if you're issuing an instrument on the liability side and you don't have the assets to not even not even satisfy withdrawal demands, but maintain the confidence in the value of your liability out in the public, mm. it, it never lasts. And so that's what we're seeing with the United States dollar, where even though you can still use dollars everywhere, they don't buy what they used to, right? That they, mm-hmm. they've been devalued over time. And there's nothing that people, there's nothing that the American government or that the Fed can do to stop people leaving the system. A la, you know, buying Bitcoin, for example. People buying Bitcoin in part is an expression that we don't trust your denomination, not even denomination, we don't even trust the instrument to Mm. hold value over time. Mm. And so that, you know, whatever happened during each of those declines during Europe, so it went from, you know, the Florin to a Spanish and a Portuguese standard over time. And then there was a French standard, a, a Dutch standard, I'm sorry, the Dutch standard, and then a French standard after that before the British standard, each of these standards, they didn't last because primarily because of confidence in the state. Mm. It's not that there's just some, some huge default and everything falls apart. It's a slow and steady decline of the trust in the institution because, you know, governments can't help helping themselves out when they have that power. And so it's the same story every time. Mm. Well, so to put it into your terminology, each successive layer of money requires more trust. And as governments sort of like spend down that trust and sort of show themselves as unworthy of that trust, at some point, there is a tipping point at which people sort of stop trusting that layer of money because they find the government on. Or, or the organization that issued it untrustworthy. And it could be a bank, it could be a government, it could be whatever. And then at that point, that sort of that layer sort of dissolved. Is that an accurate summary? Absolutely. Because as long as you have gold, and in ancient times, we always did, as long as you have precious metals to return to. So in times of crisis, you ascend the pyramid of money, hmm. you get back to the top, you get your final settlement, you escape any lower layers of money because you no longer trust them and then they dissolve. And then through time, you might go back into a trusted situation, go back down onto a second layer, but it's going to be from a a different issuer than the one from before. And as long as you are able to escape the lower layer by getting final settlement, uh, you'll be okay. And a lot of the times people are not and they get defaulted to. And so the lower you are, right? If, you know, forget states for a second, just talk about, you know, private bankers during the time that would default. There's no deposit insurance. 
you can't go and sue and try to get British pounds back, let alone gold. And so that's a risk that we have. And now in the United States, we have you know deposit insurance for commercial banking so that people look at their third layer Wells Fargo banking deposit and they don't they don't have any trust issues because it's you know double triple insured by their government you know that's not to say that they should be in dollars and be blind to what's happening to the denomination but in nominal terms they don't have any worry and rightfully so right wells fargo is not going to collapse tomorrow and then the fed will say oh all of your $20,000 depo- you know deposit accounts are null and we're not going to pay back from the FDIC that that won't happen. So it's a little bit of a tangent, but yeah. 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 Well, we're, we're going to get to all of that. So we get central banking starting with the VOC. And of course, the Bank of England comes along. And then let's fast forward to sort of like the US central bank, the Fed. Uh, post-World War II, you get Bretton Woods and you get this really weird thing called the dollar exchange standard. And you describe it as sort of like an extra layer that all of these other countries more or less are forced to trust. So can you describe that a little bit in terms of your paradigm of layered money, what what Bretton Woods actually did? Yeah, Bretton Woods was a very interesting shift in that it rearranged the hierarchy of money so that even though at the time there were all these currencies that were redeemable for gold, Bretton Woods ended all that. And it basically said the dollar is the only one that will be redeemable for gold. Every other currency will have an exchange rate in dollar terms. And that's how we're going to make the global economy go. So in a hierarchy manner, gold is at the top. The U.S. dollar is underneath gold. And then all other currencies will be under the U.S. dollar in this three-layered system. And, And that's from the international perspective. That's not as much a balance sheet issue, a hierarchy of balance sheet. It's really a hierarchy of exchange rates. And in that hierarchy of exchange exchange rates, the U.S. dollar was crowned king dollar. And that itself was not sustainable. People identified it right away, including, you know, Robert Triffin, who has the famous Triffin's paradox. He identified right away, this is not a sustainable uh, situation The global economy is too big that the U.S. won't have enough dollars to supply all that activity. And if they do supply all those dollars, their gold standard will will disappear. uh, Their gold stock will disappear as everybody, the dollars end end up all around the world and people redeem and the gold will leave uh, the country. And he was about you know, a decade or two ahead of his time in his prediction, but it absolutely ended up coming true. So that's why the official Bretton Woods period only lasted for about 24 years. And if we're being exact, it, the, it, was, it was over in about 17 years. By about 61, it was clear that uh, it was over. That's when they had to start this uh, thing called the gold pool, where they were defending the gold price because of this problem that uh, Triffin identified. And so, you know, if we look back on it and we see that, yeah, it only lasted 17 years, we can conclude that it it was a really bad idea Mm. looking back on it. But at the time, in a post-World War II world, it was the only solution that they could come up with. So 
you know, I'm not you know, one to go back 50, 60 years and criticize like moves from, you know, leaders in the past on, on this front, but it just, it, it accelerated the exit of gold from the system because they tried to keep gold in that pyramid that in a non-sustainable way. Mm. And of course, that leads to 1971, which we uh, which we just celebrated the 50th anniversary of, where gold no longer was at the top of that pyramid. Can you talk about what happened there? Yeah, basically, in 1968, it was clear that the U.S. wouldn't be able to satisfy gold redemptions from around the world, and they basically stopped letting the gold creep out of their system and by doing certain regulations and, and things like that. And then in 1971, the famous date where Nixon closed the gold window temporarily, but it ended up being permanent. This was when, and then in 1973 actually is when the era of floating exchange rates began. So that's, that's officially when gold was no longer in the hierarchy because you still had this idea that you could, or that the dollar was worth an X amount of gold that you just couldn't redeem it for. But after 1973, it wasn't, there was no price of gold that was mandated by the government. It was just a free floating price of gold. And that's when we saw gold go from, you know, double digits to $800 over that decade as it was a decade of price discovery. You know, now that the government isn't telling us what the price of gold is and currencies free float versus each other. Well, gold is also a free floating currency now and its price skyrocketed because it was, you know, it was the preferred store of value um, if for lack of a better term. Mm. And as you say, it's it sort of retired gold, right? Like it, it no longer meant that, you know, Gold was really used as money, and instead we had U.S. dollars. So, can you talk a little bit about how that changed international commerce, and um, you know, like everything that went on since 1971? Where it's obviously a big date for us Bitcoiners, but what happened from a global perspective? You know, like macroeconomically, and and so on. Yeah, now that you no longer had gold as a disciplinary constraint to central bank balance sheets, meaning that they didn't have to hold any amount of gold to issue any amount of money. Basically, it feels like the wheels came off in terms of constraint or discipline at the banking level and in the monetary system. And so, yes, you had a lot of innovation and technology and and growth and, you know, truly important times, right? The whole internet era, tech era came out of this uh, flood of money. Mm. But really what you had then is you had, now that you no longer had disciplinary constraint, you, you ended up having unlimited risk. And it took until 2007, 2008 for all of that to unwind. But it never ended up unwinding because the Fed then came in as the permanent backstop. And mm. that's not something that we ever needed before 1971. You know, for example, in past financial crisis, crises, the central bank might come in to intervene, but things then still failed and they were built back up on 
better leverage ratios, for example. Hmm. The leverage ratios that were achieved in the years after 1971 were never allowed to fully come back down Hmm. because of uh, permanent central bank intervention. So that's really, uh, when you really zoom out and you look at, you know, the whole monetary history, and that's what I had to do with layered money is really zoom out. You look at 1971, you look at 2007, and there's not a lot that we really need to go into other than the expansion of, of counterparty risk. It's just uh, an ever-expanding counterparty risk, intertwined counterparty risk situation. And it absolutely blew up in 07. And the whole system would have collapsed entirely. All banks, I mean, all these investment banks would have collapsed. And the whole system would have fallen apart. And we don't know what would have happened to the world if that would have happened. But it is safe to say that the financial system would have collapsed in 07, 08. And mm-hmm. so what the Fed did in their mind, that's why Bernanke calls himself the, or his book was called The Courage to Act. <laughs> <laughs> so, you know, it's funny and it's ironic, but the dark truth of it is that they actually didn't have any other choice. Mm-hmm. They knew that if they didn't, act and do what they did, the system would have collapsed. And so we can speculate what would have happened if it had collapsed and would we have had a better system today? Or we can just hope that, you know, Bitcoin was the echo boom from that collapse and the situation will fix itself over time. But, you know, nevertheless, today, the situation that we have is still of um, infinite bailout. And, and, and a guaranteed one, actually, which is why asset prices don't go down anymore. They just go up because there is this implicit that has become more of an explicit bailout from the Fed. Yeah. Well, so going back just a little bit, because we do have this situation where the Fed is basically sitting on top of the pyramid with, you know, these dollars that they kind of make out of thin air and so on. But the part of the book that was really like, I didn't really know too much about it, but you described the euro dollar for a while there. And that essentially ends up being sort of like, okay, well, if the Fed is using, you know, dollars as as the top of a pyramid, we're going to do that too. Can you describe the euro dollar and what it actually was? Because until I read that section, I don't think I knew what that was. And to me, it's just kind of crazy that that exists. Yes, uh, the euro dollar is one of those things that is shrouded in secrecy. And the whole narrative was very difficult to access for me as a writer, but I knew that I had to explain it because it really shows why the dollar as a denomination is more ephemeral than concrete. And the reason is in the 50s, after Bretton Woods, after World War II, you had this problem that we needed dollars all around the world because that's the denomination now that everyone decided on in Bretton Woods. But we don't have enough dollars because the Fed isn't in the business of greasing economic activity in Europe. Hmm. And so who's going to issue the dollars for that trade? European banks said, we'll, we'll issue them. 
And then they didn't ask the feds permission. They didn't, <laughs> they didn't, they, you know, they didn't like hold a conference. They're like, we're going to start issuing dollar liabilities, but they're not going to be associated with the fed system. They're not going to be convertible to any fed deposits. They're not going to fall within any of the feds mandated leverage ratios that all of their member banks in the United States have to follow. And we're not really going to consult anybody on it, but here, here you go. You know, here's a million dollars, here's a million dollar deposit. And it shows up on your, you know, on your book as you have a million dollars and you can send that from Barclays to BNP Paribas and BNP Paribas will accept it because they have a good relationship with Barclays. And before you knew it, we had this parallel dollar in Europe. Mm. And it didn't fall into any leverage ratios. It didn't fall into any money supply metrics. And so you just had this parallel dollar system in Europe spring up during the 50s and become very popular during the 60s. And then it was too late to stop it. And so once the, and one thing I didn't want to do is associate the rise of the euro dollar system with the fall of the gold standard because mm -hmm. it's very hard to say one caused the other so mm -hmm. i want to stay away from that because there's no hard evidence that it did mm -hmm. but in a soft way we can see that the confusion around how many dollars existed in europe and you know across the world did contribute to the distrust and the desire for people to demand gold for their dollars that they were holding. And so they couldn't exchange Euro dollars. You couldn't like take a Barclays deposit and take it to the uh, US government and say, can I have my gold back? But it did skew this perception of how many dollars were out there. Hmm. And, and so then I do want to fast forward to 2007 because that is when the Euro dollar system blew up hmm. in that we have these two interest rates one called LIBOR, a famous interest rate, and the other called Fed Funds, another famous interest rate. They used to be the same thing until 2007 when money market traders realized that lending dollars to Barclays and BNP Paribas and UBS and Credit Suisse and Santander is not the same thing as the rate at which U.S. domiciled banks lend Fed reserves to each other. The risk is extremely different and the rate, meaning the price of each money, doesn't necessarily have to be the same. And in August of 2007, LIBOR widened, meaning the rate went up versus Fed funds to the point where the market said, oh my goodness, euro dollar liabilities are not par, meaning they are not worth the same thing as onshore U.S. dollars. Sell, 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 sell. And LIBOR exploded in its rate. Trust in European banks absolutely cratered. And from August to December of 2007, we were witnessing the collapse of the euro dollar system. And in December of 2007, the Fed announced a, a swap line with the European Central Bank and the Swiss National Bank, the two most important central banks on the other side of the pond. And they basically said, you may print your own currency, post it to us as collateral, and we will lend you dollars, real dollars, 
<laughs> so that you can lend those real dollars to your domestic banks to paper over their, their insolvency. Mm. And that agreement in December 2007 is still in effect today. Mm. They were never able to unwind it. It did get worse, right? It got worse in 08. It got worse in 2011. Again, in 2013, it got worse in the pandemic. So they've always, and they actually had to expand it. Now it's up to, forgive me, but it's at least 15 central banks that have this sort of arrangement mm. across the world now. It's not just two, you know, two in Europe. It's it's all the major ones. Mm. And so the Fed is now not legally obligated, it's not the wrong word, but they're contractually bound by this facility to bail out the world of the euro dollar, all the euro dollar liabilities that are out there that they really don't have any knowledge of exactly how many. There's no way that they can know because they're not within their their regulatory purview. And so that's why, you know, you get the Basel regulations and all these, um, you know, global banking regulations and everybody's trying to get on the same page. But the truth is that the European banks with all this uh, junk on their balance sheet, they're still not able to unwind them. And the Fed is not able to let go because they know that if the Euro banks fail, it can cause contagion and end up causing another financial crisis. So the euro dollar system and the history of it from the 50s to 07 is a fascinating time. And the the punchline of it all is that it really made the dollar denomination no longer something concrete that anyone could pin down. It was just an idea. And the idea is now being held together by an implicit Fed bailout at, at every uh, step of the way. <laughs> yeah, the story of the euro dollar is really fascinating because it really reminds me of sort of like, you know, U.S. foreign policy intervention, especially in the Middle East, where, you know, it's somebody else's problem. And then you just sort of insert yourself in the middle. Next thing you know, you're responsible for the whole thing, which is more or less what seems to have happened with the euro dollar, where it was these European banks that started it. And now the somehow the Fed is on the hook or and, you know, everyone that created it, like, you know, without the Fed's intervention at all, and they did it on their own. Now, somehow the Fed's responsible. It, hey, uh, Jimmy, if you want to make a European person mad, just tell them that the ECB is an arm of the Fed. They take it incredibly personally. Some of them <laughs> do. But when you boil it down, this you're, you're absolutely right. The Fed is on the hook for the ECB and everything else going on in the European banking system. And there's nothing that they can do. They're just kind of committed to it. If they had let it fail in 07 or 08 even, or done something to not imply that they'll just get bailed out over there in Europe for everything by the Fed swap line, things might be different, but we're in it now. (laughs) Yeah, and uh, much like we're in a lot of messes in the Middle East, it's just sort of... All right. Somehow the U.S. comes on the hook, probably because, you know, they, they are like sort of a global reserve currency. All right. So we've discussed like sort of this history and sort of the state that we're in right now where the Fed is on the hook for a lot of stuff. And there's a lot of trust in the system that's starting to break down. So what's your perspective on how it's going to sort of resolve itself going forward? And how does Bitcoin fit into this future? 
Yeah, Bitcoin is Bitcoin is so important because it brings back a first layer of money that for the first time is building a global consensus. So for the first time since gold, we have a commodity that is also treated as money. And now gold is just a commodity. It's no longer treated as money. I should say it's no longer treated as a monetary instrument. Many people still think of it as money and rightfully so because of its history and its track record. Bitcoin is money. It is becoming a monetary standard and there is a global consensus that's forming around it. And so in the future, I do believe that Bitcoin will always stay as its own independent denomination and that it's not necessarily going to absorb the whole world economy within a Bitcoin denomination. But I do believe that over a long enough time horizon, price discovery for currencies will authoritatively be denominated in Bitcoin, where we're not looking at what the Mexican peso is versus the dollar and what the Japanese yen is versus the dollar. We're looking at the dollar, the yen, and the peso in terms of what they're worth in Bitcoin. Um, another thing that I think is potentially possible is that many governments will abandon the desire to issue a currency because it's not sustainable for every state to issue their own currency anymore in a Bitcoin era because of how easy it is. We see this in Nigeria a little bit. We're seeing it in Latin America in certain parts of it. I'm not, I'm not really talking about El Salvador because El Salvador is more of a leadership situation where they're experimenting with something. Dollars work in El Salvador, but you know, more in countries like Venezuela and Argentina where currency crises are frequent and they still have their own currencies, right? El Salvador doesn't have its own currency. That's why it can introduce this type of experimentation uh, a little bit easier than a different nation. But I do believe that nation's currencies will fall. The dollar will not cease to exist <laughs> over the next couple decades. It's too much of a policy tool for the United States. But we really can't say that for every other country where their currency is an essential policy tool. And so I do look for an era where price discovery for all these currencies is in Bitcoin instead of in dollars. And it'll take time, but that's the type of thing that I'm going to be watching closely. And when I continue my writing, I'm going to be launching a research publication this week on Substack called the Bitcoin layer to keep this theme of layered money going. We have to follow every step of the way what's going on in the adoption for the adoption side of, of things. Not necessarily like you're focused on the tech, Jimmy, you're a dev. You know, there are people that are focused on the price, the macro. And, you know, I, we need all of we need all of us. My goal, my niche is to be someone who's watching the specific adoption at state and bank levels and how that is going to contribute to this evolution of price discovery away from a dollar denominated planet toward a more Bitcoin denominated planet. It's not cut and dry. It's not black and white. There will be a blend and it's very nuanced. 
And so, yeah, that's going to be the focus of my research for sure. Oh, that's that's awesome. And it does sound like there's quite a bit of this story left to go, especially with respect to Bitcoin and how it will change sort of the way we view money and how money is treated going forward. All right. So you are launching a new newsletter. Can you tell us a little bit more about that? Yeah, it's called the Bitcoin Layer. It's going live on Substack this week here in the middle of September. And my goal is to really take everything that I've done in this point of my career to this point of my career, including global macro, geopolitics, Bitcoin, Lightning Network, price study, and combine them into high quality in-depth research for the Bitcoin era for readers. So I'm writing for my readers, people that have been with me since the time value Bitcoin and, you know, into layered money and that are that are interested in my line of research, which is really, you know, looking at the financial system, the monetary system, how Bitcoin fits in and how it is changing all these little nuances there, as well as covering a lot of the things that are going on still in the traditional markets that affect Bitcoin. But everything is going to be through this Bitcoin lens. And I do want to write a second book, but for now, this is where I'm going to live because Bitcoin is happening now. And I don't want to wait another year and a half to reach my readers. And so, yeah, the time is now. I'm really excited to hear from everybody. What do you guys want to hear about? What are your thoughts? This is going to be for you. And where else can people find you? So I'm on Twitter at time value of BTC. You can find me there. You can find my book and all the links to it everywhere at layeredmoney.com. The book is on Amazon. It's on Audible. Guy Swan did a great reading of it. And so I hope you'll check out the book, Layered Money, and uh, stay tuned for the Bitcoin layer on Substack as well. Awesome. Well, thank you for joining me and explaining sort of the history of money. Hopefully, a lot of my audience can understand better, you know, how we got to this completely messed up system that we have now. Absolutely. And it was a great sitting with you in Dallas, Jamie, signing books next to you. Uh, That was a lot of fun. And thank you for having me on. All right. Unchained Capital is a sponsor of this podcast. I'm an advisor to the company. I know the team well, and I'm excited for what they're building. If you need multi-sig, collaborative custody, or a Bitcoin native financial services partner, learn more at Unchained.com. Well, that wraps it up for this episode of Bitcoin Fixes This. Nick can be found at at time value of BTC on Twitter and at thebitcoinlayer.substack.com. Until next time, fiat the lenda est.